0: And so here, Daniel chapter six, the word of the Lord. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue King. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought, and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of the day, Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded. And those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. If someone, and maybe you've had this experience, were spying on you to try to figure out how to get you into trouble, where would they look? What area of your life would be the most problematic. Where, where would they most likely be able to dig up some dirt on you? Maybe it'd be in the area of your finances, or how you spend your free time, or how you treat your husband or wife, or maybe it'd have to do with your family, the administration of your family, or perhaps how you handle your tax returns, how you use language when nobody is, is listening. What would it be? What would it be? How you control your temper? What would it be? The area where they, they could say, well, if I, can, if I can accuse him, it'll have to be in this area. If I can find something wrong with her, it'll be in this area. We have that situation in our text today. This is a well-known text. It may be one of, if not the best-known text of the Old Testament. Daniel in the lion's den. And we have that situation. We have some people that are spying on Daniel and they're trying to figure out how to accuse him, how to dig up some dirt on him, how to, how to get him into trouble, and they're having a very terrible time of it. They just can't seem to find something that they can make stick until they come up with a, a diabolically ingenious plan. Now, as we enter into this text, we met Darius last week, and mentioned some of the the questions about who this Darius the Mede was. Maybe he was the same as Cyrus, but however that might be, we find that he took advantage of the best of the Babylonian Empire, and he set over the kingdom 120 satraps, that's some sort of government official, to be throughout the whole kingdom. Now, they would have been spread out through the kingdom. In other words, he probably kept in place much of the administration that already existed in the Babylonian kingdom. And he found Daniel, this man who was now in his 80s, to be very able, and he put him over some of these satraps. So there were 120 satraps throughout the kingdom, and then there were three high officials, and Daniel was one of those three high officials. Now, Daniel distinguished himself once again as an old man now, and he distinguished himself so much that the king wanted to raise him even higher and to put him over the three who were over the 120. And you can imagine how that sat with the others. Of course, jealousy, rivalry, they weren't happy with that situation. And as it says in verse 3, he planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, verse 4, the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground of complaint against Daniel. And they first looked in his official duties regarding the kingdom, his administration. And so they looked at how he did his job and they were frustrated because they could not find any fault in him. It says, they could not find any complaint or fault, verse 4, because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. In other words, we could say, Daniel was blameless blameless he could not be blamed for any fault in his life this idea of blamelessness it runs through the scripture we find blamelessness in the Old Testament and we find it in the New Testament as well and we ought not to raise an objection to this idea of blamelessness and sort of cop out and say well nobody's perfect but we we need to understand that blamelessness is not sinless perfection Blamelessness is not being open to accusation. Uh, To say it positively, it's a life of integrity in which er every area of one's life is under control and under the control of the Lord. We find that blamelessness in the New Testament is the long term goal and the short term goal for believers in Jesus Christ. If you go to Philippians, for example, Philippians 1, 9, and 10, Paul writes this, and it is my prayer, listen to Paul's prayer for Christians, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may, be, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So he's saying, as you're thinking about the day of Christ, and as you're getting ready for that day, my prayer for you is that you would grow in love, that that love would be in accordance with knowledge, that the result would be you would approve what is excellent in your life, so that as you move towards that day, you would be pure and blameless. And then he clarifies that that is being filled with the fruit of righteousness that does not come from you, but comes from Jesus Christ. But that's the, that's the long-term goal. But notice to reach the long-term goal, we need to have that as a short-term goal. And, and Paul covers that in Philippians as well. In chapter 2, verses 14 and following, it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So long-term goal with the day of Christ in view, blamelessness. Short-term goal so that we might shine in the generation in which we live, which he calls a crooked and perverse generation, that we might shine, that we might even now, not be open to accusation, but have lives that are characterized by integrity in every area of our lives. And by the way, this is a specific requirement for elders and deacons in the church. Elders and deacons in the church. In in uh, I can give you the text, but in Titus one six and in 1 Timothy three ten, it speaks of a requirement for deacons that they be blameless. And then it refers to elders, including pastors. That elders also need to be blameless not open to accusation so as as we still in the category in our denomination of a mission church without our own elders except for the one pastor appointed to to start the church as we think about elders in our church this is a characteristic that we need to look at that they need to be blameless in their lives that is integral in their lives now going back to our text In Daniel, chapter 6, knowing of Daniel's blamelessness, his enemies knew that the only way they could trap him was something to do with his faith. If they could set up a situation in which his faith contradicted with the law of the land, then they knew he would follow his faith instead of the law of the land. So that was their only hope. And so what they did, they convinced the new king, who was about 62 years old, but he was new as the, the ruler, they convinced him to make a foolish decree. And that was that during 30 days that no one would direct a prayer to any god or man except to the king. And this this uh, seems perhaps ridiculous to us. And they weren't in the habit yet of deifying the emperor, of calling the emperor king. So it may have been the idea that he was the the unique high priest, that they would pray through him to any of the gods. But however that might be, the king's inexperience, his vanity, and perhaps a political move, that is, to try to unite this new kingdom around one person, around himself, that led him to make this decision to issue the the decree. But I want you to notice something else. He also counted on people not taking their faith very seriously, didn't he? He counted on people being nominally religious, of having God or gods, but not really taking their faith very seriously. And that's a that's a telling description of that time, and probably of most any time, that people in general don't take their faith very seriously. But we find an exception here, in Daniel. In Daniel, it says in verse 10, he didn't do this out of ignorance. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So, um, what did he do? He did what he always did. Now, you will find a number of parallels between chapter 3. Do you remember chapter 3, where the the three young men, Daniel's companions, were instructed to bow down to a statue, and they refused. And they were tossed, not into a lion's den, they were tossed into a fiery furnace. And here we have a, a similar situation that's coming up again. The three men refused to bow down to an idol, and Daniel refused to bow down to the king, but he continued to bow down to his God. He prayed toward Jerusalem. Now, that's interesting, because that was never commanded in the Old Testament, but it it became a habit. And actually, when when Solomon was dedicating the temple, you can find this in 2 Chronicles 6, 34 and 35, he did mention this idea that, that if God's people would pray in the direction of the temple, which is recognizing that's where God met with his people, that God would hear. And it wasn't commanded to do that, but during the exile and after the exile it became a custom to pray towards Jerusalem, praying to God, but recognizing that that's historically where God had met with his people. Now, the temple at that point lay in ruins. It lay in ruins. It had not yet been rebuilt. And so he was praying toward a ruined temple towards Jerusalem. And he prayed three times a day. Once again, it's not instructed that we have to pray three times a day, but in Psalm 55, 17, David mentions that he prayed morning, noon, and night. And so maybe that Daniel had adopted that practice of David in praying three times a day. And in his prayer, he did two things. He gave thanks and he made requests. He gave thanks and he made requests, which basically covers prayer, doesn't it? Those are still the two things we do in prayer. We give thanks and we make requests. Now, what happened here? What did Daniel do? he did what he always did. And it emphasizes that. It says, as he had done previously, he wasn't showboating. He wasn't looking for persecution. He wasn't picking a fight. He was simply doing what he always did. In other words, he was under the control of inertia. Inertia. Now, sometimes that word is used negatively. And even with a, a physicist in the congregation, I'm going to uh, attempt to give uh, a layman's definition of, of inertia. Inertia is a property of matter that causes that matter to keep doing what it's doing. If the matter is just sitting there, inertia means what will it do? It'll sit there. If that, that matter is moving through space, unless acted upon by other other forces, what will it do? It'll keep moving in the same way. Direction, that's what inertia is. And so we find here that, that Daniel is, is experiencing this inertia. What did he do? He prayed three times a day. He made requests. He, he kneeled. He, he had directed his address towards God, facing Jerusalem. That's what he did. And so the habits that he had developed over decades of his long life, he just kept doing them. And that's how that's how habits are. That's how bad habits are. And that's how good habits are. And if if we, if we develop good habits during peacetime, during tranquil times in our lives, during times in which we have freedom and are not under pressure to conform to anything that is that is against God's will, when those pressures come upon us, when when the wartime comes, when the spiritual conflict gets great, when there is pressure not to Follow our faith. Then what will carry us through the inertia, the positive inertia that we've developed over the years? This is this is as individual Christians. We need to develop these these disciplines, these habits of prayer, of gathering for worship, of scripture, reading of fasting, of giving these these basic things that Christians do as couples as well. Reading the scripture together, praying together as families gathering around God's word. And celebrating together as churches as well. Praying and fasting and giving and studying God's word. And when when hard times come, those habits will will be that inertia that that carry us through. What will we do? Well, we will do what we've always done. A new movie just came out about Sabina Wormbrand who is the wife, uh, who was the wife of uh, Richard Wormbrand? and they co-founded Voice of the Martyrs, Voice of the Martyrs. They were Romanian, Jewish background, became Christians, and stayed during the Nazi occupation of Romania, and stayed during the Communist period, and they ministered, and they suffered very, very severely. And I, I, saw, I actually did, saw both movies, uh, recently Sabina and then the one a couple years ago, Tortured for Christ. And one of the scenes in Torture for Christ that, that really stood out to me is, was his prayers. He was in prison. He was forbidden to pray. And every time they would catch him praying, they would, they would torture him even more. But why did he pray? Because that's what he always did. He didn't make up something new. He just kept doing what he always had done. And paid the price for it as we will find in Daniel's case as well now Daniel's enemies obviously were spying on him he wasn't hiding but he wasn't doing this in public either so it looks like they were they were trying to find him doing something wrong and they they found him praying and praying would have been out loud so they could hear what he was saying and then they go to the king and you can see the king's inexperience here and they they say king Verse 12, Did, didn't you, it seems to me that we remember that, that you signed a, a decree that nobody could pray to anyone except you for 30 days. Isn't, don't we remember something like that? And the king, of course, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So he was trapped. And then they said, oh, well, uh, Daniel. Daniel, and then they they point out that Daniel was an immigrant. Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, he's an immigrant. He pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. This happened back in chapter 3 as well. When they denounced Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were using what has happened throughout history and is a very easy thing to do, and that is blame the immigrant. And that's what they did in chapter 3. That's what they're doing here in chapter 6. Blame the immigrant. Point out the fact that he is a foreigner. And in chapter 3, it enraged King Nebuchadnezzar that these foreigners would not bow down to his image. Here in chapter 6, we see affection. And the king was distressed. And he realized what he had done. And he tried, it says, the rest of that day, he tried to get him released. And we don't know how he may have gone to his lawyers to try to figure out how he could get him released. But then they go back to him and these same ones who were Daniel's enemies. And they said, no, O king, that is the law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that can be that the king establishes can be changed. So they pointed out that he was legally obligated and he recognized that. So it looks like there was something of a constitutional Monarchy is what we would call it that there were laws that that if the king established them not even he could change them And there's actually some corroborating evidence of that in 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 the Persian Empire That a later king was was obligated to do something similar And so the king he did it. He commanded Daniel was brought cast into the den of lions now Den of lions that was kind of a, a neat and convenient way to execute people because No human had to actually cause the bloodshed. The lions did that. And oftentimes you wouldn't have had to deal with any of the remainders. It was just the the, the death and the burial, the execution was all one thing. And it was very neat and, and clean, but it was obviously very cruel as well. And before he cast him into the den of lions, the king declared to Daniel in verse 16. And this sounds sort of like a prayer, kind of a wish prayer. May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Now, that's interesting. He had just made a decree that nobody could direct any request to anybody except himself. But he exempted himself from that rule. He directed his request to the God of Daniel. And he asked that the God of Daniel would would rescue him. Then he had a terrible night. They sealed up the, the lion's den. Closed the entrance, sealed it with his signet ring, the signet ring of his Lord's. And then he went to his palace, spent a fasting night. He spent a joyless night. He spent a sleepless night. Then at the break of day, he wanted to find out if his prayer, his wish was answered. So he runs to the tomb and he goes near and he cries out and asks Daniel this question. Has your God been able to answer my prayer? Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel's voice. And he explains what happened. O king, he gave the customary, flattering greeting. O king, live forever. My God sent his angels and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him. Do you remember back in in chapter 3? They bring the three men out of the fiery furnace. They're kind of sniffing around, looking at their hair, and they see that they weren't singed. They saw that no harm had come to them. The same thing here. They saw that no harm had come to Daniel. And then because he had trusted in his God. So we find two explanations We have two explanations for why Daniel was delivered. One has to do with him, and one has to do with God. It says, Daniel says, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no wrong. So he was innocent. He was innocent. But the the other reason is that he trusted in his God. Verse 24, 23. No kind of harm was found on him because he trusted in his God. Now, um, the king then ordered Daniel's enemies and all their families, wives and children, to be thrown into the lion's den. Now, we, we find this to be very disturbing because it seems so very unfair, but it was not uncommon to execute entire families. Why? Well, because if you execute the family, there's no one, there's no son or daughter or wife to, to try to execute vengeance against the, the sentence. It's, it, they're all gone. And so it was convenient to get rid of all of them. Now, there may be some poetic justice here because it it talks about those who had maliciously accused Daniel, verse 24. And the king commanded, and those who had maliciously accused Daniel, the expression is an interesting expression. Those who had eaten Daniel's pieces. That was the expression for maliciously accused. Those who had eaten Daniel's pieces were brought and cast into the lion's den. And what happened to them? Well, they were eaten into pieces. They were were crushed into pieces. And so there may be some specific and and purposeful poetic justice being mentioned here. Now, what we find after that is the result. And we find this pattern. There's this conflict. There's the resolution. And then the king responds. And we find that in chapter 3. We find that once again in chapter 6. And what we find throughout this book, it's helpful to, to read these first six chapters together, even though we've taken them one by one, because there's a, there's a pattern, but there's also a, a growth here. The influence of these young Jewish boys, teenagers, grows throughout the book. So we find in the first instance, back in chapter three, when there was that conflict, King Nebuchadnezzar, he praised God briefly at the end of it. And then he declared that no one should speak ill of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he protected their faith. He didn't promote it. He protected their faith. And then in chapter 4, we find Nebuchadnezzar hard to know exactly what was going on in him. But he, he, he looks like he's, he's, he's professing that faith. He's, he's promoting that God personally. And he is saying, I praise this God now. Almost as if that God were now his God. And maybe that's exactly what had happened. And now here we find the next step. Not only is it a a personal approbation, a personal recognition of that God, but now here there is a positive command to worship and fear that God. Verse 25, King Darius wrote, once again, peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And if you go back and look at each of these reactions to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to the God of Daniel, you will find that they are that this God is being praised for two reasons. One is that he reigns. And the other is because he rescues. He reigns forever. And he rescues from the place of death. In the conclusion, once again, we have the tables being turned. And this is throughout throughout these first six chapters. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Some people translate the reign of Darius. That is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. But wherever that might be, here Daniel is prospering. It looks like he got that top spot after all. And this story of faithfulness and prosperity of God's people in exile under under this sort of pressure is an encouragement to believers in all ages and believers today to us to stand firm, not to do what's wrong, to do what's right, no matter what pressure is put upon us. And that's a, a, a lesson that goes all through Daniel. However, this is not the only book of the Bible. Um, This is not the only result that we find for those who are blamelessly walking before the Lord. And we could look through Scripture, and we could look through church history, and we could look around the world today, and we could find many blameless Christians who were not rescued from suffering, who were not rescued from death, and who were not prospered in their day. Well, what do we say about them? Well, one way we can understand them is by looking at the one who is the only blameless one. And ask ourselves, what happened to him? When we think about the one who is perfectly blameless, whose in whose case blamelessness meant not only general integrity but sinless perfection. What happened to him and even Even when he was requesting that that he not have to go through that trial in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was crying out to God, saying, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your be done. What was the answer? The answer was that the blameless one had to be crucified. He had to be killed. He had to be killed in an unjust way, under an unjust procedure, under unjust laws why was that? Because that was the only way for God's people to be rescued. You see, that's what happened here. Look at chapter 3. You remember there were three men in the fiery furnace, and then who showed up? A fourth one. And he looked like the son, a son of the gods. And here Daniel's in the lion's den, but then we find out the next morning that he wasn't alone. That that the angel, God sent his angel, perhaps the angel of the Lord, God's presence. And so what happened in both of these cases? God, God accompanied his people in the place of death, and he brought them out of the place of death so that they might live. And that's the story of Jesus. We're under the sentence of death as, as, as sinners. And so what does Jesus do? What does God do? God in Jesus accompanies us into that place of death. He died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried He went into that place of death, that place of Sheol, and he rose from the dead on the third day. That was the only way it could happen. God had to come down. God had to enter into the place of death for his people, with his people, in order to bring us out alive. You notice that in this book, up to this point, and there's a kind of a pivot in the next chapter, we begin each chapter... Thinking about these great people. Thinking about Daniel saying, I'm not going to eat that food. Uh, thinking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, I- I'm not going to, to bow down to any idol. Thinking of Daniel saying, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And I'm not going to bow down to anything else except the Lord God. So we... We, we think of these amazing people. And by the way, these people get an honorable mention in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about those who quench the fire of the furnace and those who shut the mouths of lions. And so that tells us that these are people to follow. These are people to imitate. These are people who should inspire our lives. And, and we should say, I, I want to be like that. That's what a blameless believer looks like. And I want to be like that. But you notice in each case, these these amazing people end up pointing us to a more amazing God. That's how that's how the book goes. That's how the chapters go. So we start out being amazed at at Daniel's integrity. And then at the the end, we find the king of the, the, the empire praising God because God is the one who reigns. and God is the one who rescues. This is the pattern that we're given in the New Testament as well. Jesus told us this. So let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify "Glorify your father who is in heaven. Mm -hmm. You see, that's how it goes. If there is blamelessness in our lives, if there is integrity in our lives, it's because it's the fruit of God's work in our lives. And we don't get the glory. The glory is for him who reigns and rescues. Let's pray. Lord, make us people of integrity. We pray for those of us who name the name of Christ, that we would be blameless. Blameless now and blameless for that great day. We pray that you would raise up blameless men in our midst to be the elders and deacons of this church. And we pray that our reputation as a church would be a blamelessness. That as many people turn away from the faith. Blaming the church. We pray for our church that there would be nothing to blame. And we pray for our sister churches the same. We pray that we would be blameless people. Integral people, Lord and we pray that that as you work this blamelessness in us this integrity in us that not only we but all would recognize that this is not our doing this is not how humans normally are that this is a supernatural work this is a work of grace this is a work of the god who reigns and rescues this is the work of the god who accompanies his people into death and leads us out of it. And we pray that that would be evident to all, that we would shine so that you would be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.